0: Good morning, Zoe. It's good to be here, good to be with you. I know virtually, but I know in the spirit we're connected, and it's, it's an exciting time. I know there's uh, that's a loaded term because uh, there's we certainly are aware of the, the dynamics going on with our country. I couldn't uh, begin today's sermon without acknowledging the reality we're facing. And it, it is historic uh, with respect to uh, the individuals who stormed into the Capitol building uh, recently, and it, it's historic because the, the only other time something like that had happened before was in 1812, uh, in the Battle of 18, War of 1812, when England was refighting America. In fact, people at that time called it the Second War with England, and in fact, that's where our national anthem comes from. It's Francis Scott Key describing the, like, wow, the, the, the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air gave proof through the night that our flag was still there, right? So, you know, they, 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 the dawn was emerging and they heard the, 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 the fireworks and what have you going and they knew that the flag was still there because England was trying to put its flag there. And so that's part of the historic dynamic that, that went on. So that's a reality we have to deal with. Uh, it's, it's global, we have different world leaders commenting on it, but, but here's the thing that we need to keep in mind as believers. We have to have the capacity to address the reality without getting caught up in the mentality. We gotta address the reality, but not get caught up in the mentality. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna read something, not part of the sermon, but in light of recent events, I wanna read Romans 12, verse two. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern, you may discern, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so we're in a season of fasting. We're in a season of getting into the Word and hearing from God. We need to let that be our anchor. We have to have roots that are deeper than the crisis. That's how we get through a crisis. We've got roots that are deeper than the crisis. I know it's shocking, the imagery and what have you. And I'm careful not to to demean the professionals in journalism, many of whom are doing hard work. Um, but we also know that the journalism profession also involves politics and big business and what have you. And so we need to be connected with the news because we need to be informed, but we know that a lot of what we see on TV and YouTube and what have you, it's extra. Analysis and perspectives and opinions. And we've been talking about getting into into the word, but people, what are they doing? They're reflecting, they're talking, they're reading day and night people's opinions and perspectives that aren't God's. So my, my advice, get in, get out. <laughs> get the information, focus on God. <laughs> you know how to pray, you know how to do practical things but don't get caught up in all of this fanfare and during this season of fasting we have an opportunity. I'm gonna give another plug for that. You need to get involved in this fast even if you're just starting right now, uh, don't miss out. Even my kids are participating, they're not doing 21 days of fasting but we talked with them and they pick something that they could do and they, they're only doing it for a week. So this is their last day, but they decided to get engaged in it. And you know, they're seeing results. We're seeing results. Let's draw close to God. But with that said, uh, we're going to get back into our series on Ephesians. I'm going to say a prayer, and we're going to get right into this. Father, I thank you for an opportunity to learn and grow from your Word and to dig deep into it and to let you teach us, particularly today as we look at the letter of Ephesians. And we thank you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, praise God. So as you know, the as you know that the, 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 the title of our message is Christmas in January. Gift unwrapping secrets from a prison inmate part two. And I know that title seems a little interesting as an introduction to Ephesians, uh, but as we looked at last week, there is purpose in it. There's context for that, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that today. I'm going to rehearse uh, or review a little bit of what we talked about last week. So last week, we introduced our series on Paul's letter to Ephesians. We titled it Christmas in January because the letter highlights the gift that Jesus is in January and every day of the year, right? Right? A true Christian knows that Christmas is actually every day. And we, that's why we know the reason for the season, right? We don't wait till December or we don't wait till the holidays to be joyous and happy. Uh, in fact, Paul, again, writing from prison, in a different letter in Philippians, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. He was in prison when he said that, which means that our joy isn't tied to a special event or or getting a physical Christmas gift. It's actually tied to to the gift that Jesus is to us as followers of Jesus. There's some other things we said. The subtitle is Gift Wrapping Secrets from a Prison Inmate because Paul is in prison while he writes the letter. In one of the most undesirable places imaginable, Paul helps us unwrap the supernatural gift we have in Christ. And we talked about Paul's background. He was in prison and all the things he suffered. So the ways in which he's encouraging us in Ephesians isn't coming from a person who's sitting in a, in a plush hotel or mansion with air condition and all that kind of stuff. He's suffering physically, but he's rejoicing internally. So there's something in his relationship with Jesus that made it possible, not only just to have joy, but to share with us about how we can engage in that joy, even experiencing what we're experiencing. The pandemic, the economy, the, 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 the political unrest, the siege on the Capitol, all those kind of things, we can still rejoice in the Lord because of the gift we have in Jesus. However, what is very clear very early in the letter is that the wrapping paper is not around the gift, but around our eyes. As as Bishop was saying in our prayer early today, God is doing a lot of things, but we have to be able to see it. And so we have to ask the Lord through the Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see what he's doing. Our eyes have to be open to what he's doing, and that won't happen if our eyes are only on CNN. If our eyes are only on YouTube. And let me tell you, I was, I was, I was listening to a sermon uh, actually this week, and the, the sermon was about how we need to hear a word from the Lord. And, and the, the focus was on healing and how that's tied to healing, but I think there's a bigger principle. And the, the, the person preaching was saying a lot of times when we have issues, we go find a human. We go find a human being to give us some thoughts. And today we have access to the Internet, and we, you know, we, we, don't, we can quickly just Google it. We can find a YouTube clip of a how-to or what have you. And the thing is, there's nothing wrong with that, but what happens is people don't go to God. People don't go to God for counsel. They don't seek him first. He may use a human to help you, but we got to go to God first, and we have to ask him to open our eyes. Let's continue here. Accessing the gift that Jesus is requires that our spiritual eyes be opened okay so we got to go to god for counsel he has a perspective on this and believe me he's not sweating he's not worried anything like that he's in control and felt- In fact, Paul talks about that in the first chapter of Ephesians, about how he works all these things together for his purpose, and we'll get into that next week. Uh, So I'm going to still continue to get into the letter today, but the background is going to be, information is going to be more on the letter than on Paul, okay? And we'll get a little bit into Ephesians, but just a little bit today. We're only going to get past the first couple of passages, but there's some insight we're going to grab from that. So, seeing the big picture in Ephesians, like most of the books of the Bible, many of us only read small excerpts of them, but never look at them in their entirety. And so, if you've been following our fasting schedule and reading schedule, which you can see online, uh, you you, sh- you should have actually read the entirety of Ephesians by now. We're asking you to read it over and over again, so you've get, gotten somewhat of the big picture. But before we look at the finer points of Ephesians, let's consider consider some of the big ideas. So. First of all, Ephesians has 6 chapters that we can think about in two parts, 3 chapters each. And there's I'm going to I'm going to talk about those divisions in different ways. So here's a few ways we can do it. So the first 3 chapters focus on what we believe, and the second 3 chapters focus on how we behave. The first 3 focus on what we believe, but the second 3 focus on why, how we behave. This is really important. Because a lot of times when people come, are new to the faith and they come to Christ, the first thing we want to do is have them change their behavior. Well, you got to wear this, and you got to do this, and you got to do that. Well, yes, there are some implications for us following Jesus, but if we don't get our beliefs right, we'll never get our behavior right. It, start off, it starts off with our beliefs, how we believe. Here's other ways of thinking about the two parts of Ephesians. The first 3 chapters focus on who we are. The second 3 chapters focus on what we do. We need to get our identity in Christ. We can't find our identity in us. I know that it's very popular today for people to say things like this is my truth, this is who I am and I, I, you can say that if you like to uh, if you like but uh, according to the New Testament, we have to find our identity in Christ. And until that happens, we can't effectively live the life that we want to live. So, again, who we are, first three chapters, what we do, second three chapters. Here's another way of thinking about the divisions. The first three chapters focus on God's power. The second three chapters focus on our choices. That's my definition of Christian responsibility. God's power, our choices. There's a God factor, there's a you factor. They work together. God gives us the power to be and to do and to perform, but then we have to make the decision. He's not going to have faith for us. He's not going to grow for us. He's not going to persist for us. He's not going to resist the devil for us. We have choices to make. But he gives us the power to do those things. Here are some other ways of thinking about those divisions. The first three chapters focus on our status in heaven. We have a status in heaven. We're citizens of heaven, Paul says, not so much in Ephesians, but in other letters, in another letter. And the second three chapters focus on our status in the earth. Again, we talked about when I was talking about the uh, recent events, we got to deal with the reality without being tied to the mentality. We we need to have heaven's mentality on, on the earthly reality. Earth is experiencing some issues, but we can't Engage in the issues from the mentality of the earth. We got to look at from we got to look at it from several degrees up, from from several feet up. Uh, If you've been through like seminars on leadership or what have you, they talk about the ten thousand foot level perspective. Sometimes we're too close to the issue and we don't see it from a bigger perspective. We got to have heaven's mentality, where Paul says we're seated with Christ in heavenly places, and take take that mentality to look at the earthly reality, and we'll have a different perspective. Here's another way of thinking about the, uh, the, two, uh, the two divisions. The first three chapters focus on who we are in Christ. The second three chapters focus on who we are in the world, our relationships with people, our engagement with people, what we do and what have you. Again, heaven and earth, the reality of earth, the mentality of heaven, those things come together, the tension between the two. And, of course, there are three metaphors which I'm, which I'm drawn to in a large part because of a theologian named Watchman Nee. In fact, I encourage you to even get his book, an amazing theologian from the early 20th century. And he actually has a book called Sitting, Walking, and Standing, and he uh, breaks down Ephesians. But the metaphors are sitting, we're seated in heavenly places, walking walk in a manner worthy of your calling, and standing, stand therefore, when we resist the enemy. Those three metaphors are things we're going to be addressing over the course of our time in Ephesians. Well, let's get into Ephesians, okay? We're only going to get past the first two verses, and you'll see why, because there's some background information I'm going to provide about these things. So Ephesians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. That's the first verse of Ephesians. And so there's some interesting things here. I'm going to focus on that first phrase where it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, but then there's a preposition by, by the will of God. Now, to many of us, that doesn't probably seem like a big deal. Okay, yeah, got whatever, whoever we are in Christ, that's by the will of God. But I think this has special importance in, with, with respect to Paul, right? Because I, he's asking for sure, er, certainly early in his ministry, and certainly other people might ask, why did God choose Paul? He 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 wasn't he wasn't the um, he wasn't the kind of person most of us would have picked. Paul's past made him someone most of us would never choose to be an apostle. That's really, really important. And next week we'll get into the language in Ephesians that talked about how God has chosen us. Okay? But I think it's very much connected to the reality Paul is experiencing because he's chosen, yet he really does not have the material most people would choose. So, for example, in 1 Timothy 1.15, it says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and what does he say? Of whom I am chief. Of whom I am chief. Now, he's not just saying that to be theological and be humble and what have you. He really, is, he really was a bad guy. Okay? He really was a bad guy before he met Jesus. And he's aware of that, knowing that he's been called to be an apostle, right? And so he, gets, he, has, he, he encounters God on the road to Damascus. And all of a sudden, God calls him. And then this man that everyone had known to be a murderer and a persecutor of the church, he is, he, in my view, he's, he's the replacement for Judas. That's what I think. I, the apostles picked somebody else to replace Judas. But you never hear about him later. I think that Paul was Judas' replacement. That's what I think. I, th- I think that's who God chose. Okay? But what an unlikely candidate. First Corinthians 15, 9 through 10, he elaborates. He says, For I am the least of the apostles. This is what he says in his own opinion. I'm the least. Why? Because uh, I'm the least of all the of, of I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle right? Because I persecuted the church of God. He knows it. I mean, he's probably, he may, he, may have even, he may have even run into families whose members of their families he sent to be executed. And now he's ministering the gospel to them. It's unfathomable. Now, you know, you got to think about this. Imagine someone you don't have high regard for. It might be the president of the United States, Imagine if he had a road to Damascus, and God said, now I want you to preach my gospel. And people would be like, Donald Trump? Donald, are you the one who was on Twitter and encouraging people to go to the Capitol building and run him? It, I mean, I'm not saying it's the exact same thing, but it's a comparable Comparison in terms of people like this guy? Really? God? Really? But what does he say in verse 10? But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me, which was with me. So ultimately, he ended up. I mean, you could argue he did more than all the other apostles. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. The very apostle that seemed to be the least qualified to be an apostle, why? Because one of the messages of Ephesians is we are who we are, not because of us, but because of grace. Nobody's worthy to be an apostle. Nobody's worthy to be a child of God. Nobody's worthy, but grace makes us a set acceptable in the eyes of God and gives us the capacity to do things we couldn't otherwise do. So your past is not a barrier to being used of God. It's not a barrier. And yes, if President Trump today wanted to turn his life to Jesus and get serious about God, God would use him too. Even someone like that. So what we see at times, you see, in, you see evidence of the fact that Paul wrestles with the fact that for all intents and purposes, he's adopted. He's been adopted into a family, and he feels like he's not worthy. But he gets over it because of the revelation he has about Jesus, which he then shares with us. He is reassured, reassured by what is revealed to him by Jesus Christ. Now, we're gonna put this in some interesting context. Verse two, here's why Paul can be reassured. And it's gonna take me some time to unpack this, so, so bear with me, I'm gonna give you some uh, historical information about, uh, and to some degree about the verse, but the context of what was going on as we read this. So verse two, it says, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Really important, right? So first of all, this is a common greeting from Paul. Peter has a similar greeting in his letters, but this is a, you know, you see this, the opening to his letters. So in that regard, it's, you know, normal, okay? Uh, But in this context and with the history that I'm going to open up here, the word Father is incredibly important. The word father is incredibly important, okay? So first I'm gonna tell you why it's important theologically, okay? We know, especially, and Jesus really makes this clear in the book of John, which this is the other book we're looking at closely this month. Bishop is teaching a series or expounding on the book of John during during the noon Bible study, and I'm expounding on Ephesians on the Sunday service. But theologically, the father is the source of grace and peace which he shares with us through his son Jesus. Notice, especially in the book of John, Jesus is very careful to say, I do what I see my Father do. I represent the Father, if you see me, you've seen the Father. So really, the Father is the source. Jesus is the ambassador, but the Father is the source. And he is the source of grace and peace. So in that regard, the grace and peace come from the Father and Jesus. His ambassador, who is God, but as a human being is an ambassador for the Father. Representing the Father's wishes, the Father's desires, the Father's intentions. Jesus is the ambassador of the Father. We see the Father through Jesus. Okay, so we understand that uh, theologically. Now, there are some cultural and legal and historical matters to be addressed here that give a context, not just for this verse, but for the entirety of Ephesians. Now Ephesus, the, 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 the city that Ephesians is written to, Ephesians are the citizens of, of Ephesus, is part of the Roman Empire. And I'm sure many of you have heard the term, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Well, what that means is that's not necessarily applied to if you were literally in the city of Rome, but it applied to wherever the, the, the empire of Rome ruled. So if you were in Ephesus, you were still governed by Rome, so you were in Rome. Even you, you didn't have to be in the city, you were still in Rome. And, and we, we've talked, of, basically it's a colonial concept, right? So in colonialism, when you go to uh, new France or new Spain, those are terms applied to countries that aren't France or Spain, but because France or Spain colonizes them, they become France and they become Spain. So you're in France, even though you're sitting in Africa. You're in Spain, even though you're sitting in Mexico. Right? You got to do what the Spanish do, such as speak Spanish, or do what the French do, such as speak French. Okay? I'm saying that because Roman law and culture applied to Ephesus. Let's continue. So in Rome, the father was the legal and cultural center of the family. The legal and cultural center of the family, and I'm going to emphasize legal. So there are many of us who've grown up in families and cultures and societies that was kind of patriarchal where the men were the center of it, and it's cultural. But in this sense, it wasn't just cultural, it was legal. So if God were a human in first century Rome, he would be called a paterfamilius. That's the Latin term, right? And it probably almost sounds or looks Spanish because, of course, we know Spanish and French and Portuguese and Italian, they all come from the Latin. So you're going to see some things that, if you speak any of those languages, resembles concepts you, you understand or, or, or words you understand from your language. But that's what be the, the head of the family, the male head of the family, or the oldest male of the family would be called the paterfamilias in Roman culture and law. And a paterfamilias is the male head of a family or household. This is incredibly important. In fact, it provides a context for the second half of Ephesians where it says, husbands, love your wives, and and, and, and fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, and masters, don't threaten your slaves. The reality is, is that's probably, in many cases, the same guy. It's the same guy. That's not necessarily, in most instances, that's not three different scenarios. That's one person. The paterfamilias, the father. Okay. Now, this is really important. Now, let me say a few things about Roman society that's going to give some context to this. So the most fundamental division in the law of persons in Rome were in kind of four areas. One was between free persons and slaves, between foreigners and strangers, between upper classes and lower classes, and get this, between those who were independent and those who were submitted to paterfamilias. In other words, if you weren't the male head of a household, you had no legal independence. You were by law the property of the male head of the household, even the wife, even your kids. They were your kids, but they were your property. Just like slaves were. The slaves were your property, your kids were your property, and even your wife, under the law, She had the legal status of a daughter. So when Paul writes in Ephesus and he says, and he's talking about authority and submission with husbands and wives and children and and parents and and masters and slaves, these are legal things. These are legal things that that he's engaging with. This was the law. And the Roman idea of a person was separate from who they were under the law. So you could be a person, but that's separate from who you were under the law. Under the law, you might, you might be a person in life, but under the law, you were a slave. And if you were a child or a wife, you were also, for all intents and purposes, property of the paterfamilias. In fact, you could be a grown man with your own kids, and you steal the property of the Potter familias. Until he dies, you have no individual recognition under the law. And probably our, our most contemporary example of this is The Godfather. That, that, that's, a, that's an old movie, I believe, in the late 1970s or early 80s, whenever it was made. It's a good movie, you should see it. And really, the, 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 it's about the Italian mafia, right? But, but really, the Italian mafia is a crude example, is a crude uh, of how it operated. In fact, of course, the Italians are kind of directly connected to the Romans, right? And so it's passed down that way. In fact, uh, other people from, who speak Romance languages like a uh, 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 Portuguese or French, particularly Spanish, Spanish-speaking communities, you get the concept of machismo, machismo, right? that concept, you inherited the Latin-based language, but also there's the cult, that machismo concept originates from Rome, where there is the male head of the household, the paterfamilias, and he was the don. If you've seen the godfather, you know about that he owns everybody. You can't cross him. In fact, the, the paterfamilias, they had the legal power to have their children executed. I mean, they were like emperor. They, 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 they could do whatever they wanted to, to do to you, which is why, when, 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 so when you see in Ephesians, it doesn't say mothers don't provoke your children to wrath. It says fathers because they could be dick. I mean they could they could, they can pull you out of the inheritance. They can have you scores. They can have you killed. They can threaten you. And so the whole idea of loving your wife that 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 I mean she was property. She played a role in the household and in fact, most marriages at that time, she would be a teenager um, and then he, he might be 20-something years old. There was a huge age difference. And so he's probably participating in the parenting of his wife. That was the dynamic. And so the whole concept of loving her like she's a person is revolutionary. In fact, the, look at what Paul, I mean, we're not going to look at it closely now, but even if we look at Ephesians, Paul is very careful. He addresses the wife directly. He addresses the child directly. He says, children, obey your parents. He addresses the slave directly. That's revolutionary because under the law, they didn't have any recognition. If you wanted to get to them, you got to talk to the, to the paterfamilias. But to talk to them directly meant he recognized their personhood and their value in God's eyes. So, so let me say a little bit more about this family structure in Rome. The family constituted the basic structural framework of Roman society. The Latin term familia mean, essentially means household. It can refer to both persons and things. It encompasses all persons who are under the power of a single head, the familias. And in a broader sense, all relatives by blood or marriage, the in-laws, the cousins, they're your property if you're the of familiars. In uh, the Godfather terms, it's the Don. Or another movie is American Gangster, played by Denzel Washington, uh, played by the real-life gangster Frank Lucas. If you've seen that movie, it's a little graphic. It's a little graphic, okay? But same concept. He, and, he, and he learned his game from, from, the, from the mafia, too, right? So he owned the family. And you see in the movie, if his brothers did something wrong, he would beat them. And he, and he, he owned the whole block. And if the, cleaner fought, and the, and the, if the other gangsters didn't pay him, they, they, they'd have something to pay. I'm not going to say the word, but they'd have something to pay. Because he felt he owned everybody. That was the concept. In a still broader sense, the Roman family encompassed all personal property, including slaves and personal objects. And I'm quoting from Rafael Domingo and in an article called The Family in Ancient Roman Law. You can actually Google that and read the entire thing yourself in the, 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 the search tool or research gate. Uh, but you can find that. And I'm going to continue to quote him here. He says this, fam- quote, families were dominated by men. At the head of the Roman family life was the oldest male. So it, it may not even have been your father or your grandfather. It's just whoever the oldest male was, called the paterfamilias or father of the family. He looked after the family's business affairs and property and could perform religious rites on their behalf. Still quoting, uh, still quoting Rafael Domingo. The paterfamilias had absolute rule over his household and children legally. If they angered him, he had the legal right to disown his children, sell them into slavery, or even kill them. Only the potter familiars could own property, whatever their age, until their father died, right? It's almost like this is a little different concept, but it's like Prince Charles, man. I mean, his mama's going to—she's living a long time. Is he ever going to be on the throne? That's a little different, right? But still, you could be a grown man, a grown woman, and you still property. Until their father died, his sons only received an allowance to manage their own households. Still quoting uh, Rafael Domingo. Sons were important because Romans put a lot of value on continuing the family name. This is really important because when you look at the book of Ephesians in the early part, and we're going to get into it next week, where it talks about inheritance, and it talks about adoption, and it talks about sonship. Here's where that language is really important, right? The Romans put value on continuing the family name. If a father had no sons, then he could adopt one, often a nephew, to make sure that the family line would not die out. So when Ephesians, in that first chapter, talks about sonship, That's what it's talking—Paul is using the language of Roman law and culture to explain heavenly concepts. So the heir essentially is the favored son. So if you look at the Godfather movie, uh, the, the Don had all these sons, and they were in the mafia, but then he had one son named Michael. He didn't want to be in the mafia. He was doing something else at first. He was the most unlikely candidate but the most unlikely son became the heir so you had the Don and you had Michael Coleone that is reflective of God the Father and Jesus Christ you got God the Father and you got Jesus Christ just like the Don and Michael Coleone but the god of the but but the but the but the real god father Who is a good, good father, like the song says, he's not making hits for death, he's making hits for life. He said, I've chosen you. And like the darling says, I'm gonna make you an offer you can't refuse. And, 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 and sometimes the diamond's like, well, I, I have ways to make this a little bit more convincing. Uh, I'm going to bring the Holy Ghost involved. I'm going to get the Holy Ghost involved to see if that might help you and persuade you that I'm a good, good father. Maybe your part of Familius abused you and treated you wrong, but the father says, I'm good. And I got a son, and he's my favorite one, but guess what? I can give you the status of the favored son. You you, you may have been born in a family that didn't treat you right, but in Christ, you can have the status of the favored son. I'm adopting you. You see, adoption in our culture has negative connotations. In the Roman culture, it didn't. In the Roman culture, it meant that you were elevating your status. If someone wanted to adopt you, that means they wanted to make you the heir. They wanted to bring you into the family, and what I have, you have. All this is for you. In ancient Rome, adoption was not a sign of second-class citizenship, but of first-class family privileges. In ancient Rome, adoption generally meant you were elevating your status. This is because the biological relationship was far less important than the legal one. Because your biological kids you can sell. I mean, it didn't mean me very much. But the one you legally adopted, you care about. Cuz you're doing that because you want to continue the family legacy and bloodline. Maybe your blood, maybe your blood relatives, maybe they're not acting right. But you got a nephew, you got the vision. I'm going to bring you into the family and you'll be the heir. I'm going to quote here from a uh, William Barclay. He's a, uh, you can actually look his, at his Bible commentary online from the William Barclay's Daily Bi- Study Bible. I'm quoting him. He says, when the, quote, when the adoption was complete, it was complete indeed. The person who had been adopted had all the rights of a legitimate son in his new family. And check this out, completely lost all rights in his own family, in his old family, right? So when you were legally adopted, you were a son. You weren't a stepson, a partial son, a kind of son. You were a son. And you, were no, you, didn't, you didn't take on your old family's name, none of it. In the eyes of the law, he was a new person. So new was he that even all debts and obligations connected with his previous family were abolished as if they had never existed. You see, when Paul writes in Ephesians to talk about that we've been adopted, the Father God has adopted us. You're in a new family. People would understand the language and the concepts. When he says, take off that old man, put on a new one. That's not you. You're not part of that family anymore. You don't walk like that. You don't talk like that. You in the royal family. You in the royal family. See, this inheritance thing is powerful because the family and household were property. They were also Inheritance. They were inheritance, the inheritance of two entities, both the paterfamilias and the heir. So, the father of the family, his inheritance was the family. And then, if you were the heir, you inherited what the father has. So, in the first chapter of Ephesians, you'll see language that says that Paul is praying. That we understand the glorious inheritance that God has in the saints. God's inheritance. God's inheritance. We're His inheritance. We're His inheritance. But also, we have an inheritance because we now have the status of the favored Son. And in Ephesians 2, it says we can sit next to the favored Son in heavenly places. It would be like the Queen of England adopting you. And sitting you right there next to Charles and William. You right up there. You were, one minute you living in Whittier, California. The next minute you in England sitting on the throne. Why? Because God chose you. There's nothing that qualified you because God chose you. God selected you. Why? Because he loves you. Why does he love you? Because he loves you. Why does God love me? Because he loves me. There's no reason. He just loves you. He just loves you. He just loves you. There were various ways, kinds of ways to divide up an inheritance legally. However, to maximize the longevity of one's legacy, it was best to give the inheritance to a single heir, always a son. And that son is Jesus Christ. God gives it to the son, and big brother Jesus shares it with us. And even if you're not a male in Christ, that's what it says in Galatians, neither male nor female, or Greek, or or, or Jew, or, or slave, or free, it doesn't matter. In Christ, everybody has the status of the favored son. Maybe you are a middle child. Maybe you are a younger child. Maybe your parents didn't favor you, but in Christ, you're the favored one. In Christ, you're the favored one. Let me sum this up. The first chapter of Ephesians introduces us to our heavenly paterfamilias, the great Don, the great Don Coleon, but for good, not evil. We are adopted into the family and are now legal co-heirs with the favored son, Jesus. We share the status of the favored son. We rule and reign with our big brother Jesus in heavenly places. Not only have we received an inheritance, but we are the, but we are the inheritance of our heavenly potter familias and big brother Jesus. Our heavenly father is an example of fatherhood for all earthly potter familias. So all those, again... Ephesians 5 and 6, where he's talking to husbands, he's talking to fathers, he's talking to slave masters. In many instances, it's the same guy. And he says, I know you think you know what a father is, but look at the heavenly father. Through my son, Jesus. My son, Jesus, will show you everything the father is about. And you can change your relationship. you treating your family as property. But God is saying, those are my kids. Those are my kids. Those are my kids who I bought. You treat them differently. You love your wife. Don't provoke your children to wrath. Don't threaten your slaves. Those are my kids. They have the status of the favorite son. And in, and in the process, those Potter familiars, when they become Christians, they become more like the heavenly father through Christ Jesus. And our heavenly father is an alternative father for all who have been abused by earthly potter familias. And so when they submit to authority, we'll get into this in other lessons, they're submitting to the heavenly father's care. It seems like when we look at this from a 21st century perspective, We look at these verses and we think it's being, you know, it's archaic and they're they're, they're backwards. But God chose to use this society to communicate revelation to us. And what was happening as they were submitting is they were submitting to the Father's care. And through that, he was protecting them in ways that your eyes can't even see. And isn't that the theme, our eyes being opened. God wants to take care of us in ways our eyes can't see. But we've got to submit to him. We've got to submit our ear and our eyes to the word of God, to his truth, to what God communicates to us through his son, Jesus. God is not afraid. He's not anxious. He's not worried. He saw what happened in Washington. He's not worried because he's got a plan. He is the heavenly potter familiars. And his thoughts for us are good, not evil. He's not trying to kill us. He's not trying to scourge us. He's trying to bless us. If you look at Ephesians 1, it's, it's, the blessings are redundant. It's blessings from this direction, blessings from that direction, blessings here, blessings. He just wants to bless us. But we have to—but Paul prays in that same chapter, Lord, open their eyes that they can see how much they're loved, how much they're chosen, how much they're forgiven, how much they're blessed. And he writes this from prison. So the physical circumstances don't change the heavenly reality that we can access through Christ. Do you need to know Christ today? Some of you may be listening right now. And— You're listening here in one of two areas. Either you've never had a relationship with God and you're listening today, or perhaps you've been a part of a church community or a Christian community or a Christian family, and you, for all intents and purposes, have gone through the motions but never actually made a commitment yourself. You have an opportunity today. I'd like to pray with you because the Jesus I'm talking about gives us access to a good, good Father. To a heavenly Father who loves us. And though our situation may not look uh, happy or it, it may, you may not feel blessed or feel forgiven in Christ, we have that reality. And if Paul could understand that in jail, whatever your situation is, you can understand it too through the Holy Spirit. And if you're in one of those two categories, either someone who's never been a person of faith or a person who has Uh, 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 been around Christians and maybe kind of nominally been a Christian but never actually made a commitment or I'll say a third category perhaps you're sitting there and you've just kind of been on the fence I'd like you to pray with me right now and all you need to do is repeat after me and believe internally believe in your heart what, what you're saying repeat after me please dear God I come to you now and I submit my life to Jesus Christ. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, shed his blood. And after he died, he was resurrected. He buried my sins, but when he was resurrected, he defeated my sin and he made it possible for me to live a righteous life. Father God, you're a good, good father. I'm happy to be your child. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Holy Spirit, fill me that I may live a holy life. I thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're saying, if you said that, uh, if you said that for the first time or for the first time and meant it, or you're re it, to recommit to Jesus, whatever those situations are, if you can text Zoe SAVED to the number on your screen. We want to stay in contact with you. We want to pray with you. We want to connect you with people who are also walking this journey with you to follow Jesus. Other people who have similar stories as you. And together, we're going to draw closer to Jesus, and we're really excited about that. So if you could do that for us, we want to stay in contact with you. To everyone else, it's been a pleasure to be in front of you today just to share uh, and, 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 and to participate with you in learning more about Jesus. I look forward to seeing you uh, next time. And in the meantime, enjoy the rest of your Sunday. And God bless America.